Welcome to the Shallow Dive on Koheles, the book of Ecclesiastes. Join us as we explore the treasures gathered by King Solomon. I hope you enjoy it. Pectes Pasuk Beis. Hakol ka'asher lakol, mikra echod, in totality, what transpires for all, there is one occurrence, one circumstance, fortune, la tzadik rasha for the righteous and for the wicked, la tov v'latohar, for the good and for the, whole, the pure, v'latome, and for the impure, v'lazoveach, and for the one who brings sacrifice, and for the one who does not bring a sacrifice. Katov, kachote, like the good, so is the sinner, in terms of what, again, their fortune can experience. Hanishba, kasher, shavua yare, one who freely makes an oath or, or swears, like the one who is afraid of making an oath and is vigilant to, to guard the against a violation of an oath. So all of these various types of people have mikra echad, one circumstance. Let's see how the Medrash explains this. Rabbi Shimon bar Abba Posach. Hakol kasher lakol mikra echad. The general rule, like what happens to all, there is one circumstance for the righteous. In the paradigm, who is righteous? The Medrash says, Zenoch. This is referring to Noah. Shenemar ish tzadik. Tomim haya. A man who is righteous, who is wholesome. Amru kishayotzim teva hikishu ari ushevarom. V'hayatzolea. They said that when he left the ark, the lion struck him and crippled him. It broke him and he limped from then on. So Noah, the righteous, was a victim of this wound that caused him to become lame. Villa Rasha, and this also, this type of misfortune occurs has occurred to the wicked. Zeparo, this is referring to Pharaoh. Amru, Keshebaparo, Leishib al Shlomo. They say about the Pharaoh that when he wanted to sit on the throne of King Solomon, Keshelokach Biksubas Bito, which he took as part of the dowry, uh, I guess uh, not exactly a dowry, normally the father of the bride gives a dowry, but King Solomon, who took the daughter of Pharaoh as one of his consorts or wives. So he gave to her father this throne. So that was what, it's, it's part of the Ksubas Vita, what was given over as the financial arrangement for his daughter, was this gift to her father. Lo haya yodea. 
Manganikon Shelo. This pharaoh was not familiar with the mechanism of this throne, which had on the throne, at the various steps ascending to the throne, different animals. You had these lions. Vikisho Ari Ushavaro. And this mechanical lion, as it were, of the throne of Solomon struck him and crippled him by a tzolea, and he was lame from then on. Both suffered through this wound till their deaths. One was righteous and one was wicked. One event, one experience, a fortune for the righteous and for the wicked. Latov, for the good, Zemosha, this is referring to Moses. Shanamar, Vatera Oso Kitovu. And she saw him that he was good. Amar Rabbi Meir Tov Shayamahu. Good in the sense of complete, that he was circumcised, born circumcised. Vila Tohar, and for the pure, Ze Aharon, this is referring to Aaron, the high priest. Shahaya Osuk Bitaharasan Shalisra that he was engaged in bringing about the purification of the Jewish people. Vilatome, and for the impure, Eloh Meraglim. This is a reference to the spies. Sha'amru Diba Ra'a Al-Aretz, they spoke evil against the land of Israel. Velo Nechnusul Aretz, and they did not enter into the land. Ve'elo Amru Tavasa, and these ones spoke good about the land of Israel. Moshe, Aaron. And they were not allowed to enter. So, in spite of having a very different status, Tov and Tahor on the one hand, versus Tame on the other, good and pure versus impure, they all suffered the same fate of not being allowed to enter the land of Israel. Vilazoveach, and for, for the one who offers an offering to God, Ze Yoshia, this is Josiah. Tersiv, as it says, Dirayomim Beis Lamed Hezayim, Chronicles 2, 35-7, Vayorim Yoshiahu Livnei Ha'am, and Josiah brought up for the people, Vilazoveach, who is the one that did not bring an offering to God? Ze'achov, this is Ahab. Shebitel karbam, nagamim zbeach. That he nullified the offering from upon the altar. Ze'meis bechitzim, ze'meis bechitzim. Both of them, both Josiah and Ahab, died from the wound of the arrow. Katov, Ze'david, who is like the good, this is referring to King David, Dechsebeh, V'tov roi, Amar Rabbi Yitzchak, V'tov roi, Ba'alacha. Shekol shu roi also zocher es talmudo. He's called the good sighting, if you will, that he was able to elicit a sharpening of the memory of what somebody learned from the Torah. Somebody saw King David. So this was the impact that he had on them. He's given the kinui, the, the name of good. Kachote, like the sinner. Zenebuchadnezzar. This is Nebuchadnezzar. It's called the sinner. Dersiv, as it says 
in Daniel, Dalad Chavdalad, the book of Daniel 4.24, Vachatoach Bitzdoka Feruk. And your sin with giving of tzedakah, of charity, you shall redeem. This was the advice that Daniel gave to Nebuchadnezzar. So he's called a chote. King David, who is called good, built the temple and reigned for 40 years. In contrast, Nebuchadnezzar, he destroyed the temple, the sinner, and he also had a reign of 40 years. So they had the same mikra echot, the same experience, the same fortune. It's fascinating, by the way, that the verse needs to bring a scriptural support that Nebuchadnezzar is called a sinner. How do you know he's a sinner? It's a remarkable thing. I mean, you know, you call him a sinner, prove it. Maybe you're maligning the guy. What's, what's the big problem over here? So we have a verse that says, and your sin through tzedakah, through righteousness, through, through charity, you shall redeem. So he obviously is called a sinner. If he's, that's what Daniel the prophet says to him. But it's, it's remarkable that it's not taken for granted that he's a sinner. Uh, my Rebbe Rav Shurkin asked his Rebbe, Rav Yashibar Soloveitchik, he said, what was the sin of Titus. Why is he called Titus Harasha, the wicked? And Nebuchadnezzar and Titus both have uh, something in common. They both destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. And Rav Yashaber said that he was in violation of the law of Mazik. One of the seven laws of Noah, of course, we're dealing with non-Jews here, so both Nebuchadnezzar and Titus, the prohibition against theft also includes a prohibition against damaging. And destruction of the temple was damaging. Remarkable idea. So you want to know, why is he called Titus the wicked? Which one of the seven laws did he violate? Damaging. It's a subset of Gezom. So clearly, Nebuchadnezzar is guilty of the same thing. And he is called a sinner, but there's a scriptural support to back that up. That he does have that title, if you will, kachote, like the sinner. Both had one experience. The success of a reign of 40 years. Hanishba, who is the one that takes an oath? Zetzidkiyahu. This is Tzedekiah. Dersiv, as is written in Divrei Yomim, Beis Amidvav Gimel. Uh, Chronicles 2, 36-13. Asher hishbio. Nebuchadnezzar adjured Zedekiah to maintain his loyalty as essentially a puppet king. By what did he adjure him? He adjured him by the sanctity of the covenant of circumcision. Rabbi Amar He adjured him by the sanctity of the altar. And it's really fascinating that there's a debate about what was the sacred object that was instrumental in this oath. Because if you look at the verse, it sounds like 
a totally different story. Let's take a look. And also against the king, Nebuchadnezzar, did he rebel? This is on the heels of not re- that he did not listen to the chastisement of the prophet Jeremiah. So he rebelled against God. He did evil in the eyes of God, and he did not humble himself before Jeremiah from the word of God. So he also rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. Asher Hishbio, who adjured him, Belohim, by God. Okay, so the verse itself says, by God. It sounds like the oath was invoking the holy name of God. So what is the source for the debate among the Tanoim over here? Rabbi Yossi says, Babris Hishbio. Rebbe says, Was it by the covenant of the circumcision or of the altar? The verse says, Belohim. So I, I don't know where they differ, where they're coming from. Why not just say Kipshuto, that the oath was said by God, by the name of God. But apparently they understood that Belohim could be interpreted as an oath backed up, as it were, by the sanctity of the covenant of circumcision or of the divine service of the altar. In any event, that is one who swore frivolously. He swore his allegiance and then rebelled causing a great, a great desecration of the name of God. This was a violation of Jewish law. So like what happened to him, to Tidkiyahu, also happened, we find another case. Kasher Shvua Yorei, like the one who fears the oath. Zeh Shimshon, this is referring to Samson. Shenemar, as it says, in Shoftim Tezvav Yebez, Judges 15.12, He shavuli, swear to me. So Samson, based on this verse, was clearly careful and considered an oath, something sacred. And what happened to both of them? What was the fortune of Tzidkiyahu and Shimshon? This one died with his eyes gouged. And this one died with his eyes gouged. Alternatively, Latzadik, for the righteous, Elubon of Shalaron, this is referring to the sons of, of Aaron, Villa Rosha, and for the wicked, Elu Adas Karach, this is referring to the quarrelsome congregation of Karach, Elu Nechnesu Lahakriv Bemachlokes, these entered in to bring sacrifice with quarrel, Viyotsu Shrufim, they came out burnt, Uvne Aaron Shalo Nechnesu Machlokes, the sons of Aaron, not of an Aviu, that did not enter in with any debate or, or quarrel between them, they also left burnt. That is what the verse alludes to after the death of the two sons of Aaron, that they were united, that there was no quarrel between them, and yet they still experienced this misfortune of being burnt. So just backing up a little bit to 
the discussion of Shimshon. Where do we find that Shimshon has this great value for an oath? Let's open up Sefer Shoftim. So if you look, without getting into all the backdrop over here, Shimshon was engaging in attacks against the Philistines that he claimed were justified. And the Philistines were not exactly pleased. And the political climate at the time was such that the Philistines were in control and exerted more than just influence, but political domination over the Jewish nation. And the Philistines wanted to get rid of Shimshon, of Samson. They're concerned why the Philistines come up against them. And they said, To tie up Samson, Alino, we have come up. We want to give him a taste of his own medicine. We want to do to him just as he did to us. Now, in the context, he had killed Philistines. And, of course, according to his claim, this was justified. There was some backdrop of that without getting into the whole story. But at this point, we have the Philistines coming up and the people of Yehuda are confronted with this group of Philistines that want Shimshon to be handed over. And 3,000 men of Judah went down. And they confronted Samson. They said, Behold, you have known that we are under the subjugation of the Philistines. They rule over us. And what have you done to us? And Samson says, Hey, I just retaliated against what they did to me. So, he is not accepting responsibility for this. He is maintaining his innocence. And the Philistines are, of course, saying that they want to retaliate against him. So, this is their debate. And the men of Yehuda, these 3,000 men of Yehuda, are in between and quite concerned. And they tell him, We have come to you to tie you up. Come down, you're under arrest. We're handing you over to the Philistines. And Samson said to them, Swear to me, lest you attack me directly, meaning to, to kill him. He says, you yourselves should not do the dirty work. Swear to me. You want me to walk away willingly, so to speak. You want to tie me up. Swear that you're not going to kill me. They said to him, no, we will surely tie you up. 
And we'll give you over to their hands. This is classic Mesira. We'll see with Moter Aser, but this is handing over to the uh, non-Jewish authorities. Vehomes lo nemisecho, and we will not kill you. So they swore. Vayasru, and they tied him up. Vishnaim avosim chadoshim, with two thick ropes, new ropes, vayalu minasal, they brought him up from the rock. Okay, so this is the part of the story that we're focused on. And we see that Shimshon does value the oath. He says, if you don't want me to put up a fight, swear to me. Their oath is something that he values. And implicit in that is that he values an oath himself, that he is meticulous about his oath. The fact that he expects them to not take the name of God, to swear by God's name in a manner that would violate the Torah, that's an indication that he himself is meticulous. Of course, much later on in the story, as the Medrash points out, he, his eyes were gouged out and he died. But we see over here that Shimshon, in the context, although there's trouble, it's a bit of a low point in the story, he's actually coming to be Moshiach Shal Yisrael. He's coming to save the Jewish people. And he's, obviously, if you know a little bit about the story, a very strong person. And he's, although he's tied up, you see pretty shortly that he's able to do a quick flex and those strong, thick ropes are history and he wreaks havoc on the Philistines. So what's the game about? If he anyway is not, uh, not fettered by these ropes, so why does he say, swear to me that you guys won't hand me over? If he wants to fight, he could fight now. Obviously, he's looking to help the Jewish people. And the enemies who had subjugated the Jewish people at this point were the Philistines. It seems like a little bit of a ruse. What, what's going on? And what's the difference? What's the difference whether they hand him over or they kill him? Uh, there, there's, a, there's a prohibition of being Moser, of handing over a Jew to the authorities. So why is Shimshon content with that? Like, oh, if you guys just hand me over, then that's fine. He doesn't resist that. You have Mahal? Maybe he thought he could survive. Maybe he thought he could survive. Yeah, so he thought he could survive, let's say. And he thought he could survive... Even if they would say, no, we want to hand you over, he could have said, no, don't hand me over. He's gonna, if he's able to fight. So why was he willing to tolerate that as long as they wouldn't kill him? He, he, he clearly does have the power, and he, although he let himself be tied up and handed over, that, that, didn't, uh, that didn't seem to be a problem for him, nor for them. Everybody seems to be okay with this. Why is that okay? So look at the Malvim over here. It says, 
Haloyadato. Kimosh Limbanoplishim. Behold, you know, you have known that the Philistines rule over us. Kihadinhu, says the, the Malbim, for the law is, She'akum She'amru Tnulano Echamikan, that idolaters that say, Give us one of you, Vinargeno, and we will kill him. Lo, Yimseru, you're not allowed to give him over. In parentheses, Ladas Haramam, according to the Rambam. El Imkain Chayv Misa Kesheva Bimbichri, unless he is liable to the death penalty, like Sheva Bimichri, Sheva Bimichri is one of the antagonists of King David. He led a rebellion against King David. In the rebellion, a quick synopsis of the story, he is pursued by Yoav and his men. They surround the city, and there's a wise woman that says, don't attack the whole city. You just want Sheva ben Bichri, who's leading a rebellion against you, against King David. We'll just toss his head over the wall and call it a day. So don't continue attacking the city. And that was what happened. So Sheva Bichri was an insurrectionist against the monarchy of King David, and the city handed him over, killed him actually, is, is, uh, directly even. So the contrast between that case, which apparently was permitted, and this case, is that, when I say this case, uh, in, in a case where it's prohibited, where is, is there a prohibition of handing over a fellow Jew to the idolatrous authorities over here? It does not apply if the one being handed over is like Shev ben Bechri, who is Chayef Misa, liable to the death penalty like Shev ben Bechri. Rotolomer, now the Mabim clarifies, Avshe Enel Chayef Midin Terah. He's not actually liable by the law of the Torah. Rachmedin Amalchus, only against the government. So that's a fundamentally different type of liability. A person could be liable to violation, to, to death penalty by violation of the Torah. If they committed idolatry, they, they commit uh, murder. I mean, there, there are all sorts of laws violate Shabbos in a way. Of course, all the laws required, with a warning and with the witnesses, all the backdrop, there can be a, an actual result of capital punishment. That's for violating the Torah. There's another method of becoming chayv misa, is medin malchus, liable to the death penalty by rebelling against the king. And similarly, if the individual is pursuing the larger community, pursuing is a, is a technical term, as a pursuer, he is endangering the community. That's what it means, pursuing. He doesn't literally have to be running after them with a knife to kill them directly, but he can effectively be running after them with a knife to kill them by antagonizing the Philistines who are coming at them for vengeance. That also, says the Malbim, would create a similar din. Through this, there is endangering of the Jewish nation. Then it's permitted to give him over even if they, this person has not been designated. So this is, in a, a sense, a greater permission to hand this Rodev over to the authorities. He's effectively pursuing the broader community. 
So then, not only if the government says, give us that guy, hand over Samson, or whoever it might be that they're after, if there's no liability, no, no, uh, no reason to hand him over for his own guilt, it's prohibited. But if he's liable to death by virtue of insurrection, rebellion against the king, or liable to death by virtue of endangering the community as a rodev, a pursuer, then you have a heter, a permission to hand him over. The difference is the degree of permission. In the first case, where the person is like Sheva ben Bichri, is liable for rebellion, then it's permitted to hand him over if he has been isolated, if the government forces say, hand him over. Otherwise, we're going to besiege the city and lots of people are going to die. The second case is even if he has not been designated. They don't come and say, hand him over to us. But he is casting a threat against the whole community. It is permitted in such a case to hand him over. This is in accordance with the opinion of the Taz in Yardea 157. And that's why they introduce their, their dialogue. They say, Behold, you have known that the Philistines rule over us. And what have you done? Therefore, you have recklessly endangered the community. And that's why they're justifying themselves to want to hand them over. And he answers, I didn't recklessly intend to get you guys in trouble. I didn't think that you would get any harm. Because I just retaliated against them based on what they did to me. So it was an internal fight. It was me against them. There's some level of justification. And I didn't think that they would be after you. They're after me. There's no reason for them to come after me and you. They're not. It's not a... a fight between Philistines and Jews, it's just against me. So he's arguing with their claim that he has endangered them by his attacks against the Philistines. He says it's an internal matter between me and them, but there's no reason for them to attack you. And they respond to him, We have come to arrest you. We're going to tie you up. Because they have isolated you, they've designated you. So, fine. You claim that you are not a rodev, that you're not endangering the entire community. Let's agree to disagree about that, or even agree to you. But, they have designated you. They say, we want Samson. And you, I hate to break it to you, are liable to the death penalty, not for a violation of the Torah law, but for violation of Philistine law. So, therefore, as them being our rulers, and you being subject to Philistine law, because they have designated you as the one they want, we're going to hand you over. And that is the end of the commentary on this back and forth. Samson, as the verse says, acknowledges and says, okay, that's fine. You can tie me up, just take an oath that you won't kill me yourselves. He, he does not fight this point. He says, okay, right? Okay, time yet. No problem.
So from here we see that an oath is meaningful to Samson Shimshon. He is not uh, taking that lightly. He, he understands that if they take the oath, it's serious business. Why would he care about that? As I mentioned, he's trying to save the Jewish people. So if they would be willing to kill him in violation of the Torah, if there would be classic Dalitorin that is, is a terrible violation of Jewish law, then he might not be empowered to actually affect their salvation. So as their vehicle of salvation, he wants to make sure that they're meritorious. So he says, okay, you guys have a, a reasonable approach within the Torah that because they designated me and yes, I have violated Philistine law, even if I'm not endangering you all, but to fight between us, but they have isolated me, they want me, okay, fine, you can hand me over, but you still can't kill me. That would be a violation of Jewish law. And if I'm trying to help save you, you guys have to be meritorious and deserving. So I'll, I'll let you tie me up. I can still do my job that way. But if you kill me, not just I can't do my job, but if you're willing to kill me, and he's obviously a very strong guy, if you're willing to kill me directly with your own hands, that is against Jewish law, and then he might not be empowered to save them. What's yeah. the point of tying up if he's strong enough to fight it? Well, that's, that shows that they're in good standing with their overlords, the Philistines. That they, they did the bidding of the Philistines. Leave them out of it. They're, they're not supporting him in his, the troublemaking that he's making against them. That's that's reasonable. He's he's also not trying to endanger them. He's trying to help them. So that that is the back and forth that the Malbim explains. To to look a little bit more at the the nature of of the halacha of this back and forth discussion, we have various various sources to see. You can see the Rambam. The Rambam says in the Laws of Yesodia Torah, chapter 5, paragraph 5, Noshim Shomer Lehem Goyim Tnulano Achas Mikem Women who the idolaters Say, give us one of you, or one of them, and we'll violate her, if not, all of them. They should all be willing, although there's no gain in a larger sense, everybody's subject to the same suffering, but they should not be willing to give over one Jewish soul. And similarly, if the idolaters said, Give us over one of you, and we'll kill him. If you don't, we'll kill you all anyway. They should be willing to accept the death of the whole, all of them. They should not hand over one Jewish soul. Two parallels. And if they said, not just give us one, you can self-select. But they said, give us that guy. Give us that individual. Oh, or we'll kill you all. If he was liable to death, like Sheva ben Bichri, the one who led the rebellion against King David, 
Yidnu also lahem. Then they can hand him over. Ve'ein moren lahem kein lachachilam. But this is not a halacha you should advertise. Don't tell them that they can do this as plan A. It is the halacha, but it's not uh, meant to be exercised freely. Ve'ein and if he's actually not liable, not subject to death, not only not Torah law, but even not civil law, then Yehargukulam. Then they should all accept that fate, be willing to be killed. So even when he's been designated, they say, give us that guy. If that guy is not guilty, even by the law of rebellion, then they have no right to give him over. It goes back to the first cases, to the cases uh, where, where they did not designate somebody. It's prohibited to self-select and hand over one to try and save the others. So that's the ruling of the Raman. And in terms of how to apply this, by the way, for Bnei Noach, is this relevant or not relevant to Bnei Noach? So... The Rambam writes in Hilchus Malachim, Perak Yud, Halacha Beis, Chapter Ten, Paragraph Two. Ben Noach she'onso anos laval oso al achas mitzvosov. A son of Noah who has been forced by whoever is forcing to violate and transgress one of his commands, muter lo lavar. He is permitted to transgress. Afilu nenas lavar v'adazar. Even if the one forcing says worship this idol or be subject to death, still he may worship the idol. Because there are seven laws of Noah, it does not include the mitzvah of Kiddush Hashem, of sanctifying the divine name. So even for idolatry, that's the case. And there's never punishment for a minor or one who is incapacitated, because they are not subject to the commands. If they are absolved from the commands, so they're not subject to punishment. The seeming implication, the continuity of this halacha, is that just like the Torah commands Bnei Noach to desist from, to make it parallel to our case, uh, we're talking about the prohibition of murder, essentially, is that included or not? We're going to get to it in a moment, but normally a violation of the seven laws does entail capital punishment. But because it does not include the requirement to desist from these prohibitions, even at the threat of death, so therefore there's an absolvement from liability parallel to a minor or one who is exempt as not being held liable under the law. They're not commanded. So the reason they're not punished is because they're not commanded. If a minor violates one of the seven laws, he's not punished because he's not commanded. So too, the command does not extend to this circumstance. If the threat is, eat this, or the anus will kill him, so he can eat it. He's not commanded under that circumstance to abstain from eating this limb ripped from an animal in his life. That's the Ramah. Taking a look at the Mishnah Lamelech, he says, 
נסבר יופי בדברי הרב, מחבר בדרושו סבדרך, התורם דרוש בייז, דף וו, וחידש הרב, בדין זה. This is the mission of Melch speaking, he says, concerning this law, דבשפיכוס דומים, concerning bloodshed, מצווה הבן נוח. For this one of the seven laws, a son of Noah is commanded, שיהור ויעבור, to be willing to give up his life and not transgress, to murder another person. Since the derivation is logical, it is something that the intellect tells you. For what have you seen? The Talmud says, What do you see that your blood is redder than his? There's no reason to kill him to save your life. So if that's a svara, if that's a, a logical conclusion, B'nai Noach are bound by logic, bound by the intellect. And in this particular one of the seven laws, there's no difference between a Jew and a non-Jew. So take over there a look that he elaborates on this point. So the Mishnah Malach understands that although, generally speaking, there's no command of Kiddush Hashem, a non-Jew, a Ben Noach, who meticulously observes the seven laws of Noah, is nonetheless permitted, meaning not prohibited, to violate one of those seven laws when confronted with the threat of death. Nonetheless, when it comes to murder, because it's rooted in logic and intellect, so the rational conclusion is that one should not be willing to murder to save themselves. Therefore, that does apply equally to Jews and non-Jews. So this is very relevant for, for our discussion. It's relevant. We're talking about shvichas domim, about murder. Murder does not only mean with one's bare hands. We see that Ahab is called a murderer, and the severity of his murder is that he caused murder. He caused the death. It was not with his bare hands. So when someone is confronted with this threat to their lives, the option of handing over somebody, if it's not legitimate, would constitute a form of murder. It's a gram retzicha, it's causing murder, which is in violation of the law against murder. So we have times that it's permitted, as the Raman says, limited, but there are times it's permitted. The Kesef Mishnah asks, the Beis Yosef, he struggles with this Rambam, v'chein im amru lehem gayim, so he quotes the Jerusalem Talmud. Yushalmi al-Osam Mishnah. This is based on a Mishnah on Perak Ches of Trumos, the eighth chapter of Trumos. The Jerusalem Talmud elaborates. B'somach Tanya, says ne Adam, mahalchem derech. If you have a caravan of people that are traveling on the road, hogabem goyim, and they are accosted by bandits, v'amru lehem, tulonu, give us over one nekem from you. V'naragos, we'll kill him. If not, we'll kill this entire caravan. Even if they are all actually, truly in mortal danger, they should not hand over one soul from Israel. If they say, give us that guy, if he is like Sheva ben Bichri, then they can hand him over. 
and they should not all die, be killed. Omar Rishlokish. Rishlokish says, qualifies. When is that true? It's not just a matter of isolating him like Shevet Mbechri, where Yoav says, we're after that one guy, but he has to be liable to death like Sheva bin Bechri. Rabbi Yochanan Omar, Afilu Rabbi Yochanan disagrees, and he says, even if he's not liable to death, if he has been isolated, they say, give us over this guy. Rabbi Yochanan says, it is permitted to hand him over. And the Gemara and the Jerusalem Talmud brings over a story. Bahai Barnash, with this individual, the Tavdeh Malchus, Malchus said that he is, there's a warrant for his arrest by the government, and he fled to Lod. This is in the times of Rabbi Shubin Levi. And there was a threat of government against the town of Lod, and they gave him over. And Elijah the prophet had a chavrusa shaft. He would appear to him regularly, Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi. Vesulo is Galilee. And then he stopped coming. He says, that's it. I'm out of here. I am not continuing with this Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi guy. And he fasted a number of fasts. This Galilee. And then Elio Navi came back. Amar lei, l'delitar animus Galilee. He said derisively, what do I reveal myself do I come and hang out with a rat? An informant? An informer? Amar le, velo mishnah sisi. He says, hey, didn't I just follow the mishnah? It's a mishnah and trumas. Well, what did I do wrong? Amar le, vizu mishnah schasidimhi. He says, and I'm talking about the teaching of the pious. Elijah says the prophet doesn't just come to anybody. He comes to the pious. You didn't do what piety demands. You're a rat. I'm going to say it's technically permitted. You're still a rat. I'm not coming. The Rambam rules in accordance with Rishlokish. The Rambam qualifies. He said, in order to hand him over, even if they have designated this individual, he has to be chayv misa kashev mebichri. Then may he be handed over. And even then he says, that should not be presented as plan A. This is an anomaly. Normally when you have a debate between Rabbi Yochanan and Rish Lakish, almost always, as the Gemara Yuvamis 36a tells us, the halacha is in accord with Rabbi Yochanan. So perhaps because this is a case of a doubt that is with lives hanging in the balance, so perhaps that's why we're lenient or uh, perhaps... Uh, abstaining from being lenient like Rabbi Yochanan and being stringent like Rish Lakish because it's suffering nefashas. And to, to, it's, it's a stringency against committing murder. So the, the stringency is to paskin like Rish Lakish. Also, this teaching that he should be like Shev Mbichri does sound like not just that he was isolated, but that he is like Shev Bechri in, in his quality, which, as somebody who is in rebellion against King David, did entail 
the status of being liable to death. And from the verse, it also sounds like that in the discussion, Yoav is presenting him as one who's an insurrectionist in rebellion against King David, implying that he's liable to death. And if that would not have been the circumstance, it would have been prohibited to hand him over. So there's a lot of evidence in support of Rishlokish. So Rabbeinu, the Ramam holds, Dahu Barnash de Rabbi Shimon Levi, this individual in the story with Rabbi Shimon Rabbi Shimon Levi, he was actually liable like Shavim ben Bichri, and nonetheless, Elijah the prophet did not reveal himself. He broke off the Chavrusa Shaft. He didn't continue learning with Rabbi Shuban Levi because he handed him over. And he said, this is the teaching of the pious. And that's how the Rambam comes to this conclusion that although the halacha is it's permitted, one shouldn't do it. And that's why Rabbi Shuban Levi was uh, attacked not as violating the law, but as being a rat. So that's what Elionovi broke off the Chavrusashaf because of that. So the Ramam understands that the sim- similar circumstances, and still it's not Mishnah's Chasidim, meaning Ein Murin Kain Lechachila. Don't do that. Uh, that should not be the presentation of the law. So that's the Rambam, as explained by the Kesef Mishnah. So that's the law of handing someone over. The only permission to do so, at least according to Rishlokish, and the way Shulchan Aruch Paskins, Shulchan Aruch Paskins like that, it brings different opinions. So it does discuss both ways. I'll read you what it says in Simon Kufnan Zion in Shulchan Aruch, Yeridea. Ovdei Kochov, this is actually in the Ramah. Ovdei Kochovim Sha'amr Yisrael, Tnulano Echad Mikam, in Argenu, Lo Yinulahem Echad Meham, Elim Kain Yichduhu. One is not permitted, the group is not permitted to hand over one who was demanded unless they designated him specifically, Va'amr Tnulano Ploni, and give us that person. And some say that he cannot be handed over unless not only was he designated, but designated and liable to death. So that's, that's what we saw, this debate between Rabbi Yochan Rosh and it's a debate brought down to the Ramah. Okay, so let's take a look at the other halacha, the other halacha that they mentioned, which was rebuffed, they said Shimshon is endangering them. That they're under threat from the Philistines who want to retaliate for his actions against them, against the broader Jewish community. What is the parameter of a road? If you take a look in Hoshen Mishpat, Simon Taf. The Ramah brings down One who comes breaking and entering 
is also subject to the law of Rodev, considered a pursuer that is subject to being killed. If it's clear and known, clear as day, that he's only coming for money, and even if the person wants to defend his wealth, the one who's coming to steal will not kill. Then, one is not allowed to treat the one who's coming and digging to steal, to, to breaking and entering, that person is not subject to the status of Rodif if he will not kill, if it's known that he will not kill. Another case quoted by the tour. Somebody who endangers the broader community. He's a counterfeiter. In a place where the government is very concerned about counterfeit bills, so his status is like a rodev. And is permitted to hand him over to the authorities. That would be another example. If somebody is a counterfeiter, and somebody who is engaging in counterfeiting in this context would be basically instigating a pogrom. That was the, the reality on the ground. If they catch him, they would all be subject to a pogrom. So he has the status of a rodev. He doesn't plan to get caught, but good luck. He certainly is endangering the broader community, and they are permitted to hand him over, even though he has not been designated. They see him as threatening them correctly, assuming that that is the correct assessment. So they may hand him over. So that, that was the claim. The debate was not whether they could hand it over a rodef, but whether Shimshon actually was a rodef. Was he truly endangering them, or was it an eternal fight, and he was not endangering them?